The Old Testament reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 6, verses 1 through 11, and can be found on pages 163 in your pew Bible. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinance that the Lord our God charged me to teach you to observe the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all the decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you. Hear therefore, Israel, and observe the diligency that the, it may so well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, have promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord our God with all your hearts and with all your souls and with all your might, keep these words that I am commanding you today in your hearts. Recite them to your children and talk about them and when you are home and when you are away and when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign in your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorsteps of your home and on your gateposts. Caution against disobedience. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land that he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you a land with fine, large cities that you did not build, houses filled with all sorts of goodies that you did not fill, and hewn the cisterns that you did not hewn, vineyards, vineyards and olives that you did, groves that you did not plant. And when you have eaten your fill, take care that take care and remember that the Lord has given you these things and has taken you out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. New Testament reading is from the book of Luke. We're back in chapter 4 now, and you can find it on page 61 in your pew Bibles. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by that Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. 
The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took Jesus up to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time returned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me and pray for me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today's gospel reading and our play this morning found Jesus in the desert. It's a place we often think of as hot, dry, and lifeless. And it's in this place that Jesus is challenged to demonstrate exactly what it means for him to be called the Son of God. In other words, how do his faith and his identity actually affect the way he lives? Riding on the desert climate in his home country of Australia, a minister I follow named Peter Bentley explains that despite the fact that Australia is hot, dry, and barren, beneath its surface they have one of the largest water basins in the world. It covers 23% of the continent, it spans four states, but it's hidden deep underground. In some places to access this artisanal water reservoir, you have to drill down half a mile before you can hit water. Over the millennia, plants in the Australian climate have adapted to their environment, and some have even learned to exploit this resource. And one of those plants is the desert oak. I wonder if any of you have been to Australia and seen these plants. Desert oak saplings, when they're growing, look like something out of Charlie Brown's Christmas. Do you remember that tree that was droopy and losing all of its needles? They have one single stem that goes up. They have a few very withering leaves, and they look like they're days away from death. But beneath this, the surface, these oak trees are drilling down deep into the soil. They're sending a shoot down as far as they can go, searching for water. Without the assurance of success, these plants continue to drill down deeper and deeper until they hit that freshwater basin. And once they do, a transformation occurs in the plant, and it begins to look like a normal tree. It branches out, so there's no longer a single stem. Its leaves thicken, and it grows to become a tall tree that shelters animals, other plants in its shade, and provides life for many creatures in the environment. 
I thought this image of a tree root was an amazing way to enter the season of Lent when we think about our own journey into the wilderness and reflect on what that means for our life and faith and how we can be sustained. Only two of the four Gospels give us an in-depth picture of Jesus' temptation. So John doesn't touch on it at all, and Mark covers the whole thing in two verses. But as we've heard before, Luke is a details man, and so his Gospel version of this story is a lot longer. If we look at the details of Luke's story, the first thing that I notice is the Holy Spirit. So verse 1 in chapter 4, if you're looking at it, says Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. And then it says that the same Spirit is actually what led Jesus into the wilderness. And Luke sets the scene in this way. He says Jesus fasts for 40 days, and at the end of that 40 days, he's very tired, he's very hungry, and then he's approached by the devil. What stands out in that confrontation is the devil probing Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God, he says, and Marty, you did a great job at sounding very sinister. (laughs) If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And then if you look at verse 9, he uses the exact same formula. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from this high place. The devil's challenging Jesus wanting to see exactly how he's going to live into this identity. Here in the desert where he's alone, and he has few resources to support himself, Jesus is forced to establish a pattern that he'll continue throughout the rest of his ministry. His divine identity, for him being the Son of God, is not going to be shown through force, through coercion, through exploiting privilege. But oddly enough, through gentleness, through faithfulness. St. Paul would later remark on how different Jesus was to the Christ people expected. They expected a powerful, mighty king who would violently overthrow the Roman government that had been oppressing them for so long. But Paul says, we preach instead Christ crucified. And he says, this is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, here in this desert temptation in chapter 4, we get the first glimpse of what this difference looks like when it is lived out. And what we see is Jesus modeling a deeply grounded faith, a faith that trusts in God and identifies with God's living presence here and now. That presence is the Holy Spirit that we read about in verse 1. And like Richard Rohr points out in our Thought for Meditation this week, we don't have to wait until the afterlife to experience the transformation that this Spirit promises to bring. When we were in seminary, Haley and I studied a group of men and women called the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Now, these were men and women who went out to the desert to fast and pray. And they did this willingly. And what's interesting about them is they did this at the start of the 4th century. Now, who can tell me what happened at the start of the 4th century for Christianity? It became the Church of the Nation. That's right. In 325, Constantine, on his deathbed, converted to Christianity. And that was a sea change for our faith. Up to that point, Christianity had been a persecuted religion. You weren't allowed to be Christian, and if you were... They would try and seek you out, and different Roman emperors took that uh, to different extremes. But once Constantine converted and used Christianity as the official religion of the empire, 
It not only became acceptable to be Christian, it became fashionable. Everybody was going to church. Everybody was putting on their big hat, sitting in the front row so that they would be seen, and the emperor would say, well done, here's a spot for you in my court. That was great for most people who'd had to hide, who weren't allowed to worship, but it also created some problems because the more God was welcome into the public square, the less people actually seemed to be listening to what God was saying. The desert fathers and mothers noticed that. And so they retreated to the wilderness to try and rediscover the faith that they felt was being lost. They went to the wilderness. That wasn't the only reason they went to the wilderness. They also went because they knew the wilderness is a place of temptation. And unlike most of us, they thought temptation could be a tool to confront some of the deepest truths about ourselves, truths that we often don't like to admit or acknowledge. The desert fathers and mothers became so popular and well-known that people would travel out to see them, to learn from them and what their faith meant. And even though they wanted to live alone in the desert, these small, mobile communities ended up forming around them from people who wanted to learn their way and follow their pattern of life. And those communities in the deserts of Egypt became the basis for monastic communities around the world. What's interesting is in some of my reading on the history of the Celtic church, you see in Ireland there are small villages and streets named after desert, or they'll be part of a desert in the name. And that's because these desert fathers and mothers and their disciples traveled up to Ireland to teach the Celtic Christians about their way of life and to help them establish monasteries as well. It's fascinating to think that early in Christian history we had a worldwide church that was moving around and communicating with each other. I also think in an age of quick fixes, fast food, and instant gratification, this lifestyle is countercultural. It's not something we want to embrace. And the idea of Lent altogether might seem like an ancient practice that's out of touch with our modern way of life. It promises no immediate results. It promises no dazzling communication from on high. Rather, Lent is a call to disciplined inquiry. It's a call for patient searching for the presence of God. It's a time when we intentionally try to put ourselves in a place of wilderness. And for me, it's almost like a training exercise so that when the real thing happens, we're more prepared for it. Because no matter how hard we try to avoid it, at some point in our lives, we're all going to end up in the wilderness. Sometimes we enter the wilderness willingly because we feel called like these desert fathers and mothers, and we hope to encounter God in that process. Some of us willingly face truths about ourselves, truths about addiction, or forcing ourselves to confront and process painful memories from the past. But often, wilderness experiences are forced upon us through illness, through death, or through loss. But whether or not we go into the wilderness willingly, we can trust that God meets us there. God meets us in the deserted places of our lives. And we see examples of this throughout the Bible. In Exodus, Marion read for us this morning, God talking to Moses. He'd succeeded in his unlikely venture to liberate the Hebrew slaves from Egypt, 
and they ended up wandering around the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. And every step of the way, God was with them as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And a lot happened during those 40 years in the desert. Israel was born. Tribes became a nation. A law was given and a covenant was made. And that's the kind of thing that happens in the wilderness. You may not volunteer to go there. You might not like it there at all, but all the evidence suggests that it's in the wilderness that you are most likely to encounter God. That's the promise of Lent. We're not finally alone there. In our lonely wilderness of illness or grief, angels come to wait on us. The church is there. Friends are there reaching out to connect with us, to comfort us, and to hold us. And all of those things remind us that we are held in the infinite and loving embrace of a God who is with us. And my hope for all of you this Lent is that we could learn to embrace this promise as our own. That we might try to be intentional about putting down deep roots in our faith and our relationships with people here in this church family. Remembering that times of wilderness, whether or not we choose them, can also be times of transformation. Times when we find that living water deep below the surface that can nourish and sustain us through whatever life throws our way. Thanks be to God. Amen.